0: I would ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the 18th chapter of the Gospel according to John. I don't plan to do a reading because we're going to do an introduction to 18 and 19. And if I read 18 and 19 at the outset of the sermon, well, you probably... Well, it might be a good exercise, but it would leave me with less time to preach. So I want to give at least this introduction to you, this material to set before you. But we're going to be involved for a number of weeks in the study of John 18 and 19. And so let's pray for God's blessing upon our study this morning and our study in subsequent weeks. Father, we are thankful we can begin to address a very central part of... The truth of the gospel, the very account of the the sufferings of your son, his dying love, presented to us in the gospel of John. We ask you to draw near. We ask you to cause our hearts and minds to be filled with joy and filled with delight and filled with appreciation and filled with love for the one who loved us and who gave himself for us as we begin to study this great display of saving love that meets us at the cross of Jesus. So look upon us with your favor, grant us the help of your spirit as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a 19th century theologian who famously described i believe he was referring to the gospel of mark but he, but he called it a passion narrative with an extended introduction a passion narrative with an extended introduction and i believe that the same could really be said of all the gospels the gospel of john included while each gospel contains its share of much else ministry narrative birth narratives Miracle narratives, parables, teaching, sermons, discourses, the whole gamut of concerns. Everything is written in each of these Gospels as a lead-in toward the ultimate purpose of the Son of God coming in human flesh. Described in his own words as to give his life a ransom for many. Son of God came not to be the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many it's described by Paul as the whole end of his coming to be obedient unto death even the death of the cross described in the book of Hebrews in this way that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death and deliver To deliver all who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. To quote the Apostle Peter, he came to die, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. In each of the Gospels... The synoptic Gospels in particular are are extended introductions to the Passion narrative that is punctuated by certain statements that make it clear that's where we're heading. That's where we're leading. That's where the story is going. You think of the Gospel narratives of Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, giving these constant references to Jesus going up to Jerusalem where he's going to be betrayed and delivered into the hands of men. Where he's going to be tried. He's going to be he's going to be crucified. John has a similar kind of punctuation, though it's in a different way. Um, John doesn't punctuate his introduction to the Passion narrative in his gospel by speaking of the ultimate Jerusalem betrayal and arrest and trial and crucifixion. He just simply says. The hour is not yet. His hour or time was not yet. It's not until you get to chapter twelve and verse twenty-three, toward the end of Jesus' public ministry, that he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be to be glorified. Chapter twelve and verse twenty-seven he says, Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. The so very purpose for my coming is this hour. This hour in which he will be arrested, betrayed, tried, convicted, executed, by way of crucifixion, buried. He says, Now is the judgment of this word. Now. Now, will the ruler of this world be cast out? And if I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. John adds to that statement of that coming hour, the hour that we're at right now in our study in the Gospel of John. John says he said this. He said this about being lifted up from the earth to show by what kind of death he was going to die. It is his passion, his suffering, the death of the cross. That in every way is the main event. Everything else is preliminary. It's the central act by which Jesus ensures the salvation of his people. It's the reality to which each of the gospel is leading us in the telling of the story of Jesus. We've now arrived at the climactic event. Now, to be put this event in its proper place and Particularly in John's Gospel, let me say something to you about how we describe the crucifixion of Jesus in terms of a passion, or a passion narrative. Remember the movie that Mel Gibson came out with years ago, The Passion of Our Lord Jesus Christ? He got that from a a Catholic devotional writer, um, Catherine of Siena, I think it was that wrote the passion, the dolorous pa- passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, the sorrowful passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, you, if you've seen that movie, you know it's filled with graphic images of the suffering of Jesus. Um, it's it's hard to look at in many ways. Uh, because seeing the Lord's death as a passion um, speaks to the issue of something that is resulting in death and destruction, something that ends in death and destruction is something that involves affliction and, and, and pain and agony. Passion stories, when they're performed on a stage, and there's reenactments of Jesus' passion that takes place every ten years in over Amigal. In Germany, Some of you might know about that, the Passion Play. They don't actually crucify somebody, but an actor is looking to portray the events of the crucifixion. Um, the whole purpose of such reenactments is to elicit from the viewers a sense of pity. How sorrowful it is to see Jesus in that way. How sorrowful it is to see somebody suffer in such a way. But by that definition of a Greek passion play or by that definition of the meaning of the Greek word pathos uh, the story of the crucifixion and the events that lead up to it in the Gospel of John is really not a passion story at all because it does not end in destruction but resurrection it does not involve distress because at the point of arrest and trial and suffering and death Jesus expresses no distress at all that distress was back in Gethsemane that distress was earlier the point of his arrest and trial and suffering and death he's master of the situation at every single point John tells us in 18 and verse 4 then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him imagine that he knew all that would happen to him Now, if you knew all these things were going to happen to you, what would you do? I'd run. If I knew to step forward was to lead to crucifixion, I'd run. Jesus did not run, knowing all that would happen to him came forward. Came forward. He said, whom do you seek? He knows what's coming comes forward to meet the hour. To completely overwhelm not just his adversaries, but these circumstances. He doesn't draw back. He makes them draw back. (laughs) He declares, he's I am. I am. He declares himself to be the God of Israel. He uses the name of God, the I Am. They're the ones that fall back. They're the ones that fall down on their faces before Him. He doesn't fall back. He doesn't draw back. He comes forward. Knowing what's happening, going to happen... He meets the occasion, meets the hour. He's master of the trials. It's not the soldiers. It's not the people that slapped him. It's not the people that tried him and accused him and inquired of him and and made interrogation of him. It's not the ones that put the crown of thorns upon him and mocked him and said, Hail, hail to the king. It's not the people that slapped him. It's not Pilate. It's not Annas. It's not the priests. Jesus tells Pilate he would have no authority over him, no power over him, unless it had been given him from above. It's not the picture of a distressed and broken man. I'm sorry, it's just not. The master and lord of the situation who ends his suffering not in defeat, but with a cry of triumph it is finished. It is finished. Our reaction should not be to pity this Jesus, but to worship Him. To give forth a song of praise, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? To call a worship, as Thomas did. To fall at His feet, my Lord and my God. And then it's not... To see crucifixion and then say, well, that's the last thing I ever want to get involved in. i got to have a trouble-free life just to avoid troubles, to avoid afflictions, to avoid pain at all and at any cost. Because believers in Jesus see this as an example set before us in Scripture of selfless love and service to God that we are called to follow. Not avoid it, to follow in His steps. Jesus says, greater love is no man than this, than a man lays down his life for his friends. He said, you are my friends. He lays down his life for his friends. And you know what? He calls us to follow him. Now very few of us are called upon in life to give the ultimate sacrifice, the dying for the sake of others. But it's no shame to be called to give up our life for the sake of the gospel. And if we're called to see giving up our life for Christ and His people, and truth, and righteousness in this fallen world is not a sh- anything shameful, shouldn't we be living for those things? If we're willing to die for them, shouldn't we be living for them? The king, to not, you know, that's how John argues. He says, you know, if we're called to give up our life for our friends, uh, for, for our brothers. What's the things of this world? He says, Shall I close up the heart of compassion against someone who has need? Say, no, no, this is mine. I'm not gonna not gonna be generous, not gonna be sharing, not gonna be giving, not gonna be helping my brother in love, my sister in love. For we're gonna die for the gospel, die for the brethren, die for the truth, we should live for the truth. It should be the thing we live for. It doesn't belong to Jesus. It belongs to all the other characters in this narrative. We should pity betraying Judas. We should pity the blind guards and soldiers, who are being confronted with the true God, being confronted with the one who brings everlasting life, living water. They can do nothing else but say, "You're coming with me," binding him and restraining him, taking him into custody. We should pity the envy and hatred of the high priest, Caiaphas and Annas, the whole priestly caste who out of envy and fear crucified the Lord of glory. We should pity the pilots of the world, indecisive and weak, vacillating. We should pity the crowds of whom Jesus says, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they are doing. But in the midst of all the people you should pity, there stands one, solid in purpose and will, committed to do the will of his Father, committed in love to die for his sheep, demonstrating his love to disciples, to enemies, to the crowds, to his mother, as he gives care of Mary to John. Not an object of pity, but an object of adoring wonder, love, and praise. It's an account that, interestingly enough, begins in a garden and ends in a garden. Begins in a garden and it ends in a garden. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane that he's arrested, and it's in Joseph's garden tomb that he is buried. It's appropriate that these things would take place in a garden. Because it was in a garden that man originally was created to live and honor and serve serve God. And it's in a garden that man fell into sin, fell from his maker in rebellion. So it's in a garden that Jesus exercises that pivotal obedience unto death. It's in a garden that the events that led to this act of salvation for a fallen world, it begins with the rest, it ends in burial. In the middle is that great act of obedience. Mary mistook Jesus for the gardener in the resurrection narrative of chapter 20 because he's the true vine he's the tree of life he's the gardener cultivates the field of the, Lord, of the Lord to produce trees of righteousness to the glory of God brings us back to the garden brings us back to the garden city I don't mean that place in Queens <laughs> but there is a garden city and I guess that place in Queens is named after is the garden city is the city of the New Jerusalem come down from heaven from God as is described in the book of Revelation chapters 21 and 22 but it's an account that not only is Jesus the strong figure not to be pitied but to be worshipped and honored and glorified not only is it an account that begins in the garden and ends in the garden but it's a that is unified by constant mention of this one Greek word. It gets translated a number of different ways, so you don't really get it in the reading of an English translation. But the Greek word is paradidomai. Paradidomai. And when it refers to Judas, it usually gets translated as betrayed. Judas betrayed Jesus. But actually, the literal, literal meaning of the word is he handed him over. He handed Jesus over to the officers who took him into custody. Judas hands over Jesus to the soldiers in an act of betrayal. That's in 18.2 and 5, the word is used. See some eight times, I believe, in these two chapters. The Jewish leaders hand over Jesus to Pilate. In an act of envy, hatred, and fear. It's in 1830, 35, and 1911. Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified in an act of weakness. But in all of it is the activity not of Judas, or of the priests, or of Pilate, but ultimately the activity of God. Look over in the book of Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We need to understand that this handing over of Jesus is an act that takes place under the sovereign will and purpose of God. You know, people say, who put Jesus to death? Was it the Jews? Let's hear it for anti-Semitism. Was it the Romans? Well, let's hear it for, I don't know what you do there. Don't eat pizza? I don't know. Whatever it is that would uh, raise up your ire against the Romans. Be thankful that their empire fell? I don't know. But ultimately, it's neither. Ultimately, it's what we read about here in John chapter 4. Where the apostles in prayer, quoting the second psalm, but the kingdoms raging, the people, the Gentiles raging, and the peoples plotting in vain, the kings of the earth setting themselves together, and the rulers uh, taking counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. In verse 27, here's how they understand that prophecy of the suffering of the anointed king. It says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. Along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Not so much Judas handing anything over or the priest handing anything over, it's God's hand. God's hand! God handed him over. It's God's plan, God's purpose. Put his son to shame that he might be the one who redeems the world through his death. There's a final act of handing over. And it's Jesus himself handing over his spirit to his Father. That's in chapter 19 and verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, "Test, tet, tes. let me get the Greek word. Test, test it's, it's, a, it's a tongue twister. I won't try it. I'll do the English. It is finished. It is finished." And then it says, "And he bowed his head, and paradinami. Got that Greek word right? Paradinami. He handed over his spirit into your hands. I commit my spirit." what Psalm 31 declares Jesus gave up his spirit handed up his spirit over to his father so the narrative is the one in which we see Jesus strength and power in full display it's an account that brings us to pity the minor characters not the central character at all it's an account that, again, begins in a garden, ends in the garden, brings the restoration of a fallen humanity back to God. It's an account that is unified by this continuous mentioning of handing over, of Jesus being handed over, handed over, handed over, handed over. All under the purpose of God handing over his son to the death of the cross. And Jesus himself handing over his soul, his spirit to his father in this act of sacrificial love. In each of these acts of handing over, we see the grace of God at work. And we see the sin of man exposed. The exposure of the things of the human heart. The heart of Judas, the heart of rebellious mankind, the heart of the priests, but ultimately the heart of the God of Israel, who purposes salvation, who purposes that his people would be brought out of the sin and the darkness of this present evil age, and that we would be brought into a kingdom of love and of light and of life. Then finally, it's a it's a passion narrative. That's a narrative of glory. That's the final thing. That's the amazing thing about John's gospel, is it trans it transfigures the whole aspect of crucifixion as humiliation. I mean, crucifixion was designed to be humiliating. And it says, in the midst of the humiliation of the Son of God, the glory of God is actually placed on full display. And crucifixion was a punishment designed for maximum humiliation and shame. John gives us something of a restrained account of what happens in crucifixion they take you and they arrest you, they bind you, your freedom's taken away. You're physically humiliated, you're slapped, you're flogged, you're mocked. They place upon his head a crown of thorns, they put on him a purple robe, they say, Hail the King! Struck again by the soldiers and made to bear his own cross through the streets of Jerusalem, to the place of execution and his nails driven into his hands and into his feet hoisted up to be every, jump, every bone out of joint held up just by these nails experienced thirst to be brought to the place where his life simply gives out as all of his internal organs cease to function although no one took his life from him he gave it up he gave up his spirit and after his death even a spear taken to be driven through his side body humiliated by men then John gives us this wonderful count of the burial where you have disciples who cared for him and loved him no, the soldiers didn't care about him they wanted to humiliate him ultimately Pilate didn't care about him certainly the Jewish leaders didn't care about him the population didn't care about him they just went out to see the gore of an execution Jesus was loved of his father and the love of God's people was ultimately displayed Joseph, Nicodemus, go to Pilate seek his body They take it down from the cross place it and and again I think the word "delivered up" is given there too. The body's placed in the hands of disciples who loved him, and his body then, from that point forward, was treated with love and honor, being prepared for burial. And then he get a chance to anoint him with all those spices that are mentioned in the account, because God raises him from the dead before they ever get to the tomb to do that. But in the midst of all the shame, John says. This is his glory. This is the means by which he glorifies God. We sing that song about the old rugged cross, the emblem of glory and shame. You gotta rewrite that song. It's an emblem of glory. It's an emblem of glory. It was an emblem of shame in the hands of the Romans that devised it, but in the hands of the God who purposes it for the salvation of the world, it's a glory that supersedes all shame. Shame swallowed up. The Lamb of God who bears away the sin of the world rises in triumph over sin, over death. It comes the picture of the one you read about in Revelation 4 where the voice is so told about the I'm sorry, he turns and sees the lamb, but he hears about the lion of the tribe of Judah. Not a different person, same person. But he hears about the lion of the tribe of Judah, regal authority placed in his hands. He turns, he sees the lamb as it had been slain. The lamb that becomes the lion, invested with all authority in heaven and on earth, who through death himself is the pioneer into glory and who comes to lead many sons to glory sons and daughters, to glory. And all this gets presented to us in seven scenes. And we'll look at these in in coming weeks. The first scene is the garden. The garden narrative in 18, verse 1 to 11. Then there's the arrest. After the garden scene is the arrest in 18, 12 to 14. Then you have the denials of Peter in 18, 15 to 18. And that gets sandwiched in between well there's a Jewish trial that takes place in between and so it gets resumed in 25 to 27 so you have Peter's denials then you have the the two trials there's the Jewish trial in 18, 19 to 24 the Roman trial that's, that's the most lengthy one in 1828 to 1916 and then the crucifixion itself in 1917 to 37 And it all concludes at the end of chapter 19 with the burial. Verse 38 to verse 42. So we have garden, arrest, denial, trials, crucifixion, and burial that John gives us. So that's my introduction. Before we conclude, let me give you a few takeaways. Takeaways really, what this passage I think is designed to teach us about God. About God. In the first place, you know, I've already hinted at this, but I'll state it openly. It tells us about his sovereignty. The sovereignty of this God, the God who presides over all these matters to accomplish not what man, men design, but what he designs. Remember when Joseph experienced all that suffering at the hands of his brothers? they are fearful he's going to exact vengeance upon him. and he says to them when man means for evil God means for good for the saving of many alive God has a purpose that's greater than what your, what your purpose was your purpose was to get rid of a bratty brother your problem with Joseph you didn't like Joseph You're envious of Joseph. You had your designs. God had greater designs. He designs to keep his people and protect his people from the famine that was to come. You meant it for evil. God means it for good. Whatever the Jewish leaders meant for evil, whatever Pilate meant for evil, whatever Judas meant for evil, God means this for good. Out of the midst of this horrific account of what an horrific event of the crucifixion of Jesus becomes the salvation of the world We should stand back in amazement at such a God His design and wisdom and and purpose could take an event that the Jews would look upon we're told as a stumbling block and the Greeks would see as foolishness yet to those who are called that you and me who have been called by the gospel, both Jew and Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. We glory in the cross. God forbid that we should glory except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by which we are crucified to the world and the world to us. Only a sovereign God can do this. Only a God filled with sovereign wisdom and sovereign goodness and sovereign justice and sovereign power could affect through means like this the cruelest punishment probably ever devised by man. The guillotine takes place quickly. Execution, well, sometimes not so quickly, but basically quickly. Crucifixion. What a horrific, what a horrific death meant to humiliate and yet through that God means good, purposes good, achieves good, achieves not death but life, achieves the salvation of the world the second thing I would say is that I think what we have here is not only the sovereignty of God at work but the presence of God at work God's not absent from the scenes of greatest suffering Jesus said, you'll all leave me, but I'm not alone. All of his disciples, he said, well, leave me. You'll all be scattered, yet I'm not alone. He will be upheld and supported and loved by his Father. I know he was the object of divine wrath in terms of the abandonment of the cross. But though there was an expression of divine abandonment, turning away from the Son in some fashion... Yet it was never because he was hated by his father. In fact, the father never so loved him as when he, in obedience to his will, suffered the death of the cross. Don't think of the abandonment of the cross, meaning God was punishing Jesus. No, he was atoning for sin. He was atoning for sin. He was putting away our sins through the sacrifice of Christ and then the final thing I would say is the introduction I would lead you should bring us to also see God's worthiness to be praised worthiness to be praised again Jesus endured the frown of men he endured the hatred of the crowds he endured a bit, the, 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 the betrayal of one of his followers. And yet, the smile of heaven was worth it all. Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you from the foundation of the world. And that was worth it all. More than all the frowns of mankind is the smile of heaven. It's the smile of the living God. We're told for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross lightly, regarding the shame. That's what despising means. He didn't regard it. He didn't regard that humiliation. Didn't regard the shame. He had greater things in his in his in his vision the people whom He would redeem, the glory He would bring to His Father, the glory He would achieve at the Father's right hand. May God fill our hearts with also praise in the midst of our sufferings, in the midst of the ways people discard us and discount us and frown upon us, that believe that the smile of heaven is worth everything. Is worth everything. May God be pleased to bring us as we think of the things we've looked at in the introduction to the Passion narrative, to glory in His sovereignty, to glory in the reality of His presence, and to glory in His worthiness to be praised. Let's go to Him in prayer. Father, we are thankful for Your Word, that it is truth. We're thankful that it presents us with this great display of of sovereign love, how great your love must have been to us, that you would bring your Son to be the atonement for our sins. You would not spare Him, but you would deliver Him up for us all. And Lord, if you would give us such a gift in Jesus, what would you withhold from us? What were you not willing to give to us? How will you not also, with Him, freely, give us all things? So we're thankful for this account that we're given in John's Gospel where you look forward with great anticipation to studying it in weeks to come. And and we pray your blessing would be upon this assembly that we would be a church that is centered in the reality of the self-giving love of Jesus. We would be a people that glory in the cross. We would be a people that live the Gospel and spread the Gospel by lip and by life. We ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless your people as we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen.